This episode of Intermission is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. Whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, it's guaranteed to be either a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before. And there will always be something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch and instead, you'll actually be watching something great. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anywhere, anytime. Try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash filmstage. That's M-U-B-I dot slash filmstage for a whole month of great cinema for free. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to your death. Now let's see where you're headed. Turn the crank. And experience what's in store for you deep within the mighty real box. Hello, and welcome to Intermission, episode 15. Uh, Intermission is a podcast where a guest is invited on and picks film that is available on streaming that can be loosely defined as art house, international, or experimental. And then we talk about it in pretty much any direction we'd like. Today, uh, we are going to be talking about Steven Soderbergh's 2002 film Solaris, which is an adaptation of Stanislav Lam's book of the same name, which was also adapted into to Andrei Tarkovsky's 1972 film, Solaris. And today I am here with Dan Mecca. And Dan, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Good to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm Dan Mecca, co-founder of the Film Stage website and co-host of the B-Side podcast for the Film Stage uh, podcast network, which intermission, B side, film stage show, we're all, it's all family. <laughs> it's a family affair today. It's a family Absolutely. affair. I wouldn't have it any other way. Me neither. Yeah, no, I, I, I've been doing, you know, the upper echelons of uh, <laughs> right. film stages. Founders, I, I'll have to hit every uh, founder, even for the people who are no longer at the Right, you have to get find have to hit everyone. Danny King? What's Danny King <laughs> yes, doing? Yes, Danny King. Where's yeah. Danny? Where uh, are you, Danny? That is the exact one. <laughs> My Pittsburgh sister, Amanda Waltz. Uh, Amanda is definitely coming on. She has brought up a genuine possibility of wanting to talk about Super Mario Brothers. Which, like, sure. Oh, yeah. But she wanted to talk about it as an experimental film, if I sure. remember correctly. Yeah. This was a yeah, decent sure. amount no, of time ago. But, yeah. Um, but Amanda will definitely be coming on. And certainly other people who are part of the Film Stage family sure. will, will be on. This episode of the Film Stage Intermission podcast is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the world. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. Right now, Mubi is featuring prolific Korean director Bong Joon-ho's singular 2006 monster movie, The Host. A meld of political satire, melodrama, and more traditional horror elements, it's one of a number of genre film subversions in Bong's career, 
and one of his best efforts. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Filmstage. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Filmstage for a whole month of great cinema for free. But today, Dan, as as we said, you picked Mm. Steven Soderbergh's Solaris, which is, well, first, uh, would you be willing to describe the plot of Solaris really quick? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So Solaris, just for those who don't know, it's very simply psychoanalyst Chris Kelvin is asked by his friend and fellow kind of psychiatry person, uh, Jabarian, to come to Solaris, which there's a space station orbiting over this ocean planet called Solaris, and things have been going wrong. And he's asked to basically take on a one-man mission, Chris Kelvin is, to go there and see what's happened and figure out what to do about it. And he gets there. Things have gone predictably bad. And what he quickly learns from the surviving members, Snow and Gordon, is that when you're there... There are these personifications of people in your life that come into being and kind of force you to confront, you know, trauma or regret that that's kind of occurred, either represented by these people or adjacent to these people. And in Chris Kelvin's case, that's represented by his late wife, Rhea. And from there, it becomes just a matter of what to believe, what to do about these alien beings who are who are presenting themselves as these humans and kind of who is who they say they are and who is not um and even that is like more thrilling than it really is but sure but it is great but it is it is great the one other thing i would say about the soderbergh you say it is i just think it does a wonderful job with really emphasizing the agency that these beings have and how that exists. Yeah, that's a good point. And that also speaks to uh, McElhone's performance as like the being she's playing becomes self-aware of her limitations. That's like a whole nother, you know, as an actress, sure. like she can really eat, you know, it's like very interesting. You know, I think Matt McElhone's kind of an underrated yeah. actress who this is her moment, right? Laurel Canyon, uh, underrated movie. It's the same year. And, yes, you know, Ronan that's like, four, right. four years before and The Devil's Own, you know, which is not maybe quite as good as these movies, but The Devil's Own in 97. And she's here, right? She's announcing herself in America, at least. And then she was in Californication, which I did watch every episode of. I think I've seen four or five seasons that's of Californication. Just, hey, that's something about me, guys. That's just something about me. I watched <laughs> that me show. Too. <laughs> I freaking watched that freaking show. I like sometimes think back and I'm like, yeah, I just like watch that in Entourage. I just like watch those shows. It just makes me laugh. I'm like, that's just yeah. funny that I did that. That's like a chunk of my life where I just, I didn't think they were bad. I don't even know that they're bad, honestly. I, I just think it's funny. I'm like, yeah. They meant a lot to me. I was younger, and they meant a lot to me. I, I, I have no shame. But anyway, that is all very important to Solaris, obviously. Tell me generally why you picked it. Yeah, I mean, so Soderbergh is one of my favorite filmmakers, certainly. I kind of think of him in the same way I think about a Spike Lee, where I just think of these guys as kind of, you know, these very talented, incredible, diverse, multifaceted, creative filmmakers who have done a myriad of different genres, styles, right? High budget, low budget, what have you. So yeah, for as long as I can remember, 
remember Soderbergh's been a guy I've really digested everything he's made. I think I've seen everything he's made. I think I think I've seen most of what he's made. I I've, I I would have to go back and look. I mean, he's made so much. I'm sure I haven't seen everything, but I feels like I have. And um, you know, Out of Sight blew my mind. Ocean's Eleven, of course, was you know a very popular movie that I didn't like when it first came out, if memory serves. But I came around to it quick. Oh, yeah, it was okay. I think more of a me thing than anything. You know, I, I would have been you know. Uh, whatever, 13, so v- kind of very pernicious age, probably. But, like, out of sight... Aaron Brockovich. Uh, Aaron Brockovich, certainly. I think Traffic more so okay. when I was that age. And then it's funny to, like, watch Traffic and then, like, be in college years later and watch Battle of Algiers and be like, oh, this is, like, the best movie ever made and Traffic's kind of trying to just be... You know, he's, like, just doing his Ponte Corvo, yes. which is good. I mean, tra- I like Traffic, but but it's interesting to then go back to the source and be like, oh, well... Okay. But so I was really into Soderbergh. So Solaris, I think, was one of those movies I just probably watched or my mom maybe rented it, which was such a common theme for more challenging movies because my mom has watched, as, as we talk about on the B-side, she's watched a lot of those types of movies. And it kind of, I don't know if I even loved it. I think it just tickled me. It was interesting. It was different. And then over the years, I kept coming back to it. I obviously, in college, I think, discovered, discovered, I mean, watched the, sure. the Tarkovsky, the 72 film, really liked that one and then and then and then went back to the to the Soderbergh and we kind of was like oh yeah these are like two very different adaptations but they both work very well and then a few years back I finally read the Lem novel the 1961 novel which is a short novel it's like 200 pages ish give or take and um I love that it was funny it's like you know when I like stuff I try to ingest like as much as I can like if if a movie's coming out that's adapted from a book I try I do try to read the book you do okay well I like it I don't care about spoilers I have never cared I, you could tell sure. me I don't care I'll never care I, to me it's like I get why people care it's just not my thing it never has been so it's for I, I want to read the book I want to watch the movie I, I want to know as much as I can so yeah. that I can feel informed and understand it and that's always basically always has been how I've been and it's like so rich it's like to me you're only enriching your experience it's like, uh, read Mario Puzo's The Godfather. It's so different from the movie. Sure. Like, it's like, it's not as good at all. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's an okay book. It's it's pulp. Is it- yeah, he's like an air, and this is, this is going to sound meaner than I mean it to, but he's like an airport paperback novelist guy. I mean, you know, he wrote Superman. Like, he's like a very good, high octane yeah. entertainment author, right? So The Godfather book is like an action movie. It's like a million things happen. Happen. It's like 240 pages. It's like, you know, so many people get the shit kicked out of them. Like the Johnny Fontaine stuff's like way more lurid and like all of the like handsome, deeply Italian, like sins of our father, like Catholic shit. That's all Coppola. I mean, that's, you know, it's, so there are two different things. I mean, and the narrative is the same. So it's like to bring it back to Solaris, it's like my favorite of all of the Solaris's is certainly the Soderbergh, yeah. right? Without a doubt, I think Soderbergh you know, hits the Grand Slam. I think it's, if it's not his best movie, it's his right behind out of sight, I guess. I mean, it's like, I think it's an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, had you, had you, you hadn't seen it right before I suggested it? Yeah, I had yeah. not seen Solaris. What's your favorite? Looking at your letterbox, do you have, what's your favorite Um Let me pull mine up, actually. Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. I, I mean, I think this is something we'll get into a little bit, because uh, I definitely want to talk about, I, one of maybe the odd things I want to talk about with 
Solaris is exposition and how that has yes. changed so dramatically throughout Soderbergh's career. Right. So when it, it so there are definitely like stages and acts. Like most recently, you know, in the last like ten sure. years or so, Unsane is probably my favorite. When it comes to Overall, like, I think the yep. limey was a pretty big deal to me. Sex Lies and Videotape was a pretty big deal to me, but I haven't seen that since probably early high school. It's been a long time. So it's like some of these... I, I think it's interesting, though. I don't always connect, like, oddly, like something like Logan Lucky right. is something that I don't connect with at all, despite finding, like, certain scenes just wonderful. And then, like, something like Haywire, like, some of the more exercise stuff, it works for me as often as it doesn't. But I still right. find them broadly interesting. And, like, Logan Lucky, like, even from just a broad view, the structure of that is so interesting to me. Like, how it goes in to the Hillary Swank, like, I don't know, maybe that's the third act, because that sequence and when she comes into the film, there's still a decent amount of film left, if I remember correctly. But yeah, yeah. so he's just, he's someone... I don't have the deep affection for him that some people do. Something kind of funny, for instance, is like, if Magic Mike XXL was in fact him. I know it's obviously a main collaborator or something. Yeah, Gregory Jacobs made yeah. it, right, who's his AD. Yeah, That yeah. would probably be my number one Soderbergh, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I agree. I love XXL far more than than the first. Like, I think, I think yeah. a lot of people share that opinion. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. And by all accounts, you know, obviously Soderbergh had a strong hand in that film, but yeah, it's not one of his films, sure. Yeah, and I think, yeah, it's interesting. Unsane, I like, doesn't work for me maybe as much as you, but like, but I just see it as shock core. Sure. Yeah, of course. For, yeah. for 2010s. It just worked like gangbusters for the second. Yeah, time. no, it's a very fun movie. Side Effects, obviously, is another one that's, it's a different, it's kind of, he's doing, it's obviously not shock corridor, but it's like, a, you know, he's doing a paranoid thriller you know, pharmaceutical scenario than that one. Yes. That period where he's like, you know, he's making the Nick, right? He's getting more modest budgets to do stuff like Unsane, Side Effects, Magic Mike, you know. Behind the Candelabra. Sure, bigger budget, but yes, Behind the Candelabra for HBO, you know, which was a long gestating thing, which I actually really like that movie, actually. I, um, I do, too. What do you think about Unsane, where it's like, that? that's like an iPhone movie, right? Like, essentially, right? You know, not in like High Flying Bird, where it's like, you know, yes. there's minimal lighting, the locations are kind of what the locations are. It's like, you know, I think that's more what I mean. But like, you know, Logan Lucky, obviously, kind of Southern fried Ocean's Eleven, if whatever you want to call it. I think that doesn't work for me quite as much. I'm in agreement with you on that, though I do think there's a lot of entertainment value there. And I think that's my thing with Soderbergh. It's like even his misses, and he's had surefire misses, like they're fascinating. I do think like no matter what he's doing, like even the laundromat, right, for example, which, you know, is kind of very reviled in many circles. And I and I totally get why. Sure. I think it's a fascinating movie. I mean, it's like what he's trying to do. And you know, he makes some poor choices, certainly. Like, But it's like, you know, he's making his Panama Papers movie. And it's like, it's not the post. You know what I mean? It's like, no. you know, and, and I like the post, but it's like, he's very much choosing to be like, no, I'm going to make this version of it. And it's not yeah. a money thing. I mean, I don't think so. It's a style thing, you know, it's, and it's, I find him to be brazen. 
brazen. I like the word brazen, okay. and I find and I find him to be a brazen filmmaker, and I love that. And I think you know, bring it back to Spike. I think Spike's brazen. I mean, God knows. I think who would disagree with me? And it's sure. like you know, she hate me is a travesty of a film, but. I've rewatched it because it's so crazy. You're like, well, God, man, like only one person could have made this movie. Like, it's so insane. You're like, I suppose we'll, we'll touch on these. But like, you know, when you talk about your full frontals, you know, or your bubbles or your schizopolises and it, and I love I love schizopolis. So so like I think schizopolis is amazing, but is a movie nobody saw and like everybody hated at the time and what have you. Where do you land on good German? So good German is a movie I, I feel like I rewatch every two years because I'm like, this has to be good. And every two years, every two years, I'm like, still, it's not very good. It kills me because you feel like, I mean, but, but, but what's brazen about the good German, and I've talked to, with Connor, my, my co-host, uh, Connor O'Donnell, my B-side co-host about this, is Soderbergh is like, okay, let me take George Clooney, who, you know, has the Cary Grant thing with a little bit more sardonic yeah, yeah. You know, tones going on, right? What have you. He's like, let me take my Cary Grant. Let me put him in the Humphrey Bogart role. Let me take Kate Blanchett. Let me put her in the, you know, Ingrid Bergman by way of Marlena Dietrich role. And then let mm. me let Toby Maguire play it to 12. And I'm going to make the anti-Casablanca movie. Like, I'm going to make Casablanca. I'm going to promise you Casablanca. I'm going to make okay. the poster look like Casablanca. I'm going to... But then every single beat where, you know, if you're the Epsteins and you're Curtiz and you're, you know, Paul Heinrich and, and you're going to go left with your narrative decisions, he goes right. Right. Like even up until the very end of the movie. Right. And it's like yeah. you are daring the audience to say, fuck you. Right. That's what you're doing. I mean, 100 yes. percent. And Solaris is the same thing. And obviously the marketing has something to do with that, too, which we can get into. But like that period where like he has unbridled success. I mean, no director has had the year. His 2000 is like no director has had that. Like maybe maybe Spielberg with yeah. Schindler's and Jurassic Park in 93. OK, but like you can't it's like you could count on one hand, right? Where it's like Aaron Brockovich, big studio movie, big studio movie star, big studio hit at the same time. Also critical hit <laughs> traffic, small mid major movie USA films doesn't even exist anymore. Small ish budget for what they're trying to do. You know, all-star cast all working for scale. Basically Harrison Ford yeah. drops out of the movie. Cause he doesn't like multi-camera. Right. And like all, all that stuff. Right. Michael Douglas takes over the role. I didn't know Ford was in that role. That's super interesting. Ford was like filming. Ford was like rehearsing. And he, I think, got the story is he got scared off by the digital, you know, we're going to shoot four cameras at once. Sure. You know, and I think, eh, you know, I think, you know, look, Ford's whole career is kind of, I think, here and there peppered with moments of kind of, you know, he's a big movie star. Moments of being like, I don't want to do this. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's yeah. and it's it's a shame because he's taken big swings, you know, like K-19 or something where sure. I think there there is success in them. But it's, a, you know, it's he would have been great in traffic in the Wakefield role. But um, point is, you know, that year and the next year is Ocean's Eleven. People are like, oh, like Stevie, <laughs> what do whatever you want for like five years. And I don't know that anybody has like taken the check and run with it better than him. I mean, yeah, it's insane. That run is crazy. He makes one of James Cameron's dream projects, Solaris, right? Mm -hmm. He, you know, and Cameron's talked about this. Makes it like in a way where James Cameron's like, I would never have done anything he do did in the he movie. He said he would make the abyss. Yeah, he, he was like, he was like, I yeah. would never have done any <laughs> single thing. 
that Soderbergh did, but that's why I like, you know, that's why I like what he did. And you're like, yeah, I mean, that makes sense, right? And then I think Full Frontal is basically a folly, but it's interesting. And then, like, all the way up until Che, it's, like, insane. It's like he's just taking house money and being like, I'm going to do everything. And it's basically an incredibly fascinating half decade, you know, with stuff like The Good German. I mean, and we were talking before, before we press record, like, Ocean's 12. You want to talk about a fuck you to the audience? I mean, my guy's <laughs> like, yeah, let's just go to George's house on Lake Cuomo and like literally make a French new wave movie, like act like it's a normal sequel to my biggest hit. (laughs) But actually we're going to like be sticking our middle fingers up at you the whole time and then expect you to be like, Oh, that was fun. That's insane. And like people hated it and it, it was a disappointment at the box office. It was a hit, but like, you know, it was not, it was a slight, you know, for the studio or whatever. Yeah. And they basically make 13 as like a, oh, sorry, here's the one you wanted three years later, which I like 13 fine. I think 13 is good in its own way. But 12 is like, is an unmitigated masterpiece. It's just, I think like an absolute, one of his best movies, like... It's insane it exists. You know, I'd urge anybody to rewatch it. Anyway, so point being, Solaris is at the beginning of this run, and I think it's very indicative of just the sheer ambition that this guy was working with in this moment, especially this pocket is so crazy. To go back just a second, there is something interesting about the perception of Soderbergh and and the way that, I I, I mean, you know, I guess this is any big director these days. If we want to talk about Tarkovsky and him being humorless and and everything, people are obsessed with focusing on the cool and the sleekness of Soderbergh. But like, it is interesting because when we are talking about some of these, I mean, yeah, they are (laughs) middle fingers. It's not like a situation where the antagonism is something thing you're on the outside of. right he's not like you know a vincent gallo or, no. or or even like an oliver stone like soderbergh and i think it's just like that energy is very infectious and it doesn't quite have the same like disaffected you know new york no wave cool of like jim jarmusch yeah. it is interesting that soderbergh it's or at least in my case, I guess I forget how playful he is yeah. every time beyond just formal manipulation and just kind of kitchen sink. <laughs> yeah, the, I think the crucial difference is, you know, he can't help but entertain, right? I think. Yes. You know, and I think that speaks to maybe his formal. I think it speaks to the stuff he likes. Every year he posts a list of everything he's watched and read and listened to. Yes. Right? And I think if you read those lists, it's very clear it's this is a man who loves old Hollywood, right? He loves high drama, big performances. So it's like, you don't think of him as one of those filmmakers. You know, he, no. he, he, you don't think of him like a Peter Jackson or you don't think of him like a, even like a Gina Prince Bythewood is maybe a better modern example. Mm. You know, the woman King or something where it's, I like to think she's a great filmmaker and, and she does a a lot for kind of restructuring classical narratives from a newer viewpoint, right? If yeah. you're thinking about the musician film with Beyond the Lights or yes. the, you know, the kind of period epic with The Woman King or the sports film with Love and Basketball or even the superhero film with The Old Guard, which I, I don't think fully succeeds, but I think she's what she's trying to do is very evident and interesting. Um, yes. And so you don't think of him like that, but no. certainly he has that in him. And I think with Solaris, it's the artsiest till he ever gets, right? I think it's it's a very quiet, beautiful pensive movie but it's also very simple and i think the thing about maybe to to even step away even from soderbergh but just to quickly talk about solaris as a whole i think i mentioned before you know i've read the book 
I love the book. This, obviously, the, the Tarkovsky's masterful. I love the Soderbergh. In preparation for this, I listened to the BBC audio play from 07, which is also very good. Before the Tarkovsky, there was a 1968 TV film in Russia that's like a straight adaptation of the book. Really low budget, black and white, kind of just the set is the spaceship. It's like... yeah. You know, it's kind of not great, but it is interesting. And I think this all stems from the fact that the story's great. I think it's a great story. You know, when you think about adaptations, we were talking about kind of, you know, you had posted on Twitter, what are other remakes, you know, international or otherwise that work? And, you know, that had me thinking and people had great responses. And like, you know, the first one I think of other than Solaris is The Wages of Fear and Sorcerer, Sorcerer. right? Which are two masterpieces very different movies incredibly different movies right like could not be more different but yeah. the premise is incredible i mean how could you fuck that premise up it's so perfect it's like the tension inherent in just the framing of those films no matter where you set it you're yeah. starting on third base right is and i think solaris has a little bit of that I think the premise which is basically like we're in the future right there's been a mission to this ocean planet called Solaris to kind of investigate what's going on. And the mission has failed. And the security team that went to go check out the mission, that has also appeared to have failed. And so they send a psychoanalyst named Chris Kelvin, who has kind of a history with the project. And this is basically true of all of the versions in some capacity or another. Sure. They send Chris Kelvin, who in, in the Soderbergh is George Clooney, on a one-man mission to get there to dock and to just figure out what's going on. Like what's going yeah. on, what happened to the crew. And he gets there and shit's gone bad. People are dead. Other people are alive, right? Snow in the Soderbergh played by Jeremy Davies. There's another character in the other versions called Sartorius, who in the Soderbergh version is called Gordon. And that's Viol Davis in the Soderbergh. They're yes. like not talking to each other. Like, you know, super recluse. Yeah. Uh, Gordon's Sartorius, locked herself right? in her room. Snow is like way more cavalier, but he's also weird. And Jeremy Davies asking, <laughs> you're like, okay, what's going on? Jeremy Davies doing what Jeremy Davies does best. And, um, and I do love, I do love him in the movie. I like forget you like, wow. You're just like, wow. Okay, buddy, you are just doing it. And you're like, Damon Lindelof must've seen Solaris and been like, we need that guy. Daniel Faraday. We yeah. need that guy. <laughs> and so, um, Kelvin gets there and he quickly learns when you're in the orbit of this planet, as the space station is, your past traumas and your dreams and your regrets are personified by these alien beings into the thing that encapsulates it. So sure. in the case of him, Kelvin, it's his wife, Rhea in the um, Soderbergh and in the translations of the book, but in the Russian versions, it's Hari. Yes. But point is that's, the whole thing. So then it becomes like, okay, this isn't really my wife. My wife killed herself 10 years ago. Um, I feel somewhat responsible for that. But here she is. The one thing I wanted more than anything. What do I do with this information? And it becomes this thing of like, how do you wrestle with that? Right. And I think yeah. Lem's book is hard science fiction, right? It's like him and Arthur C. Clarke and Asimov in a different way. They're all very like didactics to a mean of a word but they're like it's about the science right it's like they want to write shit where it's like let me tell it, it, you it's clinical clinical is a great word yeah and lem i think never liked the adaptations because not surprisingly because you're making a movie 
Tar- and Tarkovsky does it in a different way, but they're similar. Where and I always said it. I've, I've been wrong about this. Whenever I would talk about because I was re- when I was rewatching, I was thinking this. I would always say that Soderbergh's is closer to the book, and that's one of the reasons I like it. And that's not true. And I don't know why I said that because it's not really. Well, he said that. Uh, to be fair to you, Dan, he said that. Soderbergh did say okay maybe that maybe that's why I thought that because I guess it maybe is but I guess it only is in the sense of the thing in the Tarkovsky movie which is added and great let me say is the first 45 minutes they're at a farmhouse that Kelvin's family owns and it's like the most beautiful green like Mm -hmm. you're seeing the earth the water the river like and it's in that like long one scene essentially where you get all the exposition that in the book and to a lesser degree in the Soderbergh, you get like just in pieces throughout. Sure. In the Tarkovsky, it's like there's a dispatch from Gabarian, who's like the other psychoanalyst who was there before Kelvin, who early on in, in all of the versions you learn has died, but has experienced the same alien encounters, what have you. Sure. But that beginning, that 45-minute beginning in the Tarkovsky is a beautiful example of kind of what Tarkovsky does a lot, which is like he loves juxtaposing things, right? Where it's like, you know, Stalker has a lot of this too. It's like, it's so funny. When you watch Solaris, you can tell like Stalker was like right there. Like he was like, oh, let me make this adaptation. But I got this other idea right here. Also Mirror, you can see a lot of. Mirror too. Mirror, you're getting really like, his like last two, three, the sacrifice, right? Like he's getting very much like, let me investigate myself. But. <laughs> um, but that beginning is beautiful, but it's certainly, it's nowhere in the text. And I think the thing the Soderbergh doesn't have, though I don't care, but it, it is lacking, I suppose, in one way, is like in the Tarkovsky at like the hour mark, when you, when you get to space, you are like, oh, Earth is great. It would suck. It would definitely, you would miss like grass. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> you, you are like, yeah, that would be vacant um to sure. some degree but i suppose just my point is just you know i tried to read and reabsorb all these adaptations and it they're all i think they're all quite wonderful and i think it's rare you get a narrative in which that's the case i can't really think of many like i mean wages we brought up but like and so sure. yeah th- that soderbergh had the confidence to tackle it that lightstorm and cameron had the confidence to basically give him a you know 60 million dollar budget or whatever it was that he would just burn i mean nobody saw the movie Everybody hated it. If we're talking again about perception, I thought this was a bigger flop than it was. Yeah. I, I recognize that, you know, it still lost $20 million or $23 million. I think it was 37 box office on a 60 million budget. But right. I will say, I mean, that, you know, combined with the infamous F cinema score, I, I feel like in a way, this movie has gotten retroactively a, a worse reputation than it maybe got at the time. I, and, and to be fair, it's it also like looking at reviews at the time, you'd have a dollar pretty quickly if you had a dime every time someone used the word pretentious, for instance. In sure, a, sure. And yes. a mainstay review. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I mean, look, I think there's a history of these types of movies being mismarketed. I mean, look, Ad Astra, sure. way more recently, starring Clooney's friend Brad Pitt, right? Like, Sunshine yes. is... I, I do think Sunshine kind of does what it promises. I, I, I absolutely love, 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 love Sunshine, but... um, but It becomes um, a genre film in the last... Like, which I love. I mean, I love 35, that. 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah I yeah, love yeah. that. But but yeah, it, that, was, that was a huge, huge, huge 
huge flop when it came out for Searchlight. And Ad Astra made money. I mean, you know, Brad Pitt's star shines bright, which, you know, right now feels, you know, weird, I suppose, and not great. But I mean, sure. Ad Astra did better than the other ones. But similar thing, they kind of, I always love you look at the marketing for Ad Astra, that the gunfight on the, on the, was it the moon or whatever? Yes. It's That's like, like the yeah. scene. And like if you watch <laughs> yeah. any marketing, you're like, oh, dude, this set piece. And it's like the one set piece. It's like that in the mo- the monkey yes. thing is, is, yeah. is, you know, which is act- actually a great sequence. Um, But yeah, there's a history of this, I suppose, where it's like it's sure. a little weird where it's like I think it all stems to some degree from 2001 being a huge hit. I mean, people forget that. Like, when you watch 2001 A Space Odyssey, it seems a little crazy it was a huge hit, but it really was. It was a counterculture, like, blockbuster smash. Yeah. And, you know, had the luxury of being inventing cinema, right? So it's also, like... (laughs) that was also uh, important is like people were literally seeing things they could not even fathom like at all when they were watching that. So that's important to remember. But, but I think you have this history of these types of movies and Solaris, I think it's like, you know, Clooney's coming off of the Batman and Robin debacle. He's not on ER anymore. He hasn't really become a movie star. And then all of a sudden it's out of sight, oceans, perfect storm. And he is a movie star. Then it's like, Oh, never mind. We were right about George. Great. And then it's like people made a lot about how he was going to show his his ass in the movie. And it's like they had to cut frames of his butt out of the whatever. So it could make the ratings board or whatever that they call it. Backside, though, which is really funny. To backside. Me. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I just think the holiday release and all of that stuff informs it. And then ultimately, I think they did market it heavily. So, yeah. you know, yes, whatever the 47 million, 50, whatever the budget was, it made less. But then if you consider all the marketing, right, it's like it made it lost way more. Or, you know, than 20 million. I'm sure it lost sure. 40 plus, but you're not wrong. I mean, I think, yeah, there's there's an idea that it's like Cutthroat Island or something, and that's not true, but it's aged really well. And I think, like, some of Soderbergh's movies, uh, and not all of them, but like some of Soderbergh's movies, you, you look back and you go, wow, he was a little ahead of the curve, right? Yes. When you think of the, the limey. For instance, sure, the limey. Yes, the limey is is in a totally different way, kind of an editorial masterpiece. For those who don't know about the limey, he basically made that movie linearly and hated it and thought it was incredibly boring and well, it was stressed out because he made a boring movie. And him and his editor they devised how to cut it so as to basically derive tension from kind of a very straightforward revenge, you know. Sarah Fleck is what it might be. Sarah Fleck. I'm looking it up now. But anyway, and, you know, and this is like a Lem Dobbs script who's like a very kind of utilitarian writer. Um, Yes. Yeah, Sarah Fleck. And so... um, what do they do, right? They they start at the end of the scene and then, right, that's they basically like over they have this like overlapping device that kind of informs what's happening next and it it changes the whole movie, right? It makes mm-hmm. the whole thing this like kind of formal exercise but also adds tension, adds drama. You know, the flashbacks are way more effective because they feel more surprising, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah, and that's the thing, man. The thing that we've, we already said it, but that's the thing with Soderbergh. Like, the formal stuff is, like, incredible. And I think with Solaris, he feels like no one's in his way. Money for that wasn't 
a problem. And, you know, like we're with Che, like Che, he just was trying to make it for so long. He finally was like, well, fuck it. Like, what are you going to give me? Half of what I need? I'm going to do it anyway. Right. So like, <laughs> I think Che's great, sure. but you can really, I mean, he's really stretching that dollar. I mean, you can, you can, you know, I think it's incredible what he achieves, but like Solaris feels comfortable. It feels like exactly what he mm. set out to make. Right. And I think yeah. Clooney's deployed perfectly. It's like, you know, the thing with Clooney is like, he is I actually just was doing a podcast for the film stage and Fran Hoffner was our guest and we were talking about movie stars and she mentioned the thing George Clooney is one of those movie stars where often when he's at his best he's George Clooney the movie star and that doesn't mean he's a bad actor like Tom Cruise is not a bad actor Tom Cruise is at his best when he's Tom Cruise the movie star it's just the the thing that you learn about yourself that how do you deploy it it's like George Clooney's in up in the air he's George Clooney he's great in up in the air Michael Clayton same thing right it's like and I think Solaris is great because he is George Clooney dialed way down and it's yeah. I think it's he's deployed beautifully it's like and and Natasha Miguel on my god who like I love is I think incredible as Rhea in that movie I, I mean truly I, I feel like that's an example of I mean perfect casting did you did you like the movie what did you think of Solaris did you like it what was your thought of it yeah no I do really like it I, I think that you know it's, it's weird because I think that some of the very earnest qualities right towards the end, like right. some things that were earnest instincts, I think some of it read to me as stiff or sure. I had some of this and I like was th- thinking about this afterwards and I'm like, all right, I know why I didn't like this instinct about, for instance, why they decided to not keep this only ambient sound. Like for instance, why Martinez's Cliff Martinez's score swells at this moment. And and there were certain things that I think were grandiose in a way that wasn't always my style, but then I was just so interested in just how organic this movie feels in terms of, I, I, I think it's partly because it has a lot of breathing room. Like there's a lot of sequences where he's just walking around the ship, you know, and you're just, you're soaking in this certain aesthetic. And it, it's so weird because it's a Swiss army knife quality to right. everything in the ship. Like everything is handles and inlets and, uh, you know, things have 12 different uh, functions and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so, like ugly and well cold but then when you get those scenes with natasha mcallen oh my god it's it's just like there's an enveloping warmth and like comfort not only to the way it's shot where it's edited episodically and you know everything's kind of evocative and a little bit vague but not in like a mysteriously bad way which i think is especially interesting for this even beyond what we'll talk about with the way this was marketed i just was so almost fascinated how much this is controlled to never become another movie like there is like even towards the end like the urgency ramps up a little bit in terms of the actual plot <laughs> sure like at least what they think is happening and it like it doesn't ultimately matter like it's still ultimately like a relationship movie at the end of the day like it, it has much reminded me of something like brief encounter as right. you know any kind of sci-fi film so i really like how vague so much of it 
is, like how little exposition there is. And the, then again, the realizations that come with the longer amount of time that they're talking. Like there's, there's also a pretty compelling, not particularly flattering selfishness to Clooney in this oh, that yeah. I didn't necessarily detect in, in the same, you know, purely emotional way in, in the Tarkovsky, for instance. It's there, but I, yeah. I think it's then also fascinating that so many people use the word cerebral for Soderbergh's film. Like, you know, there were multiple critics I saw who said, like, this is one of the most cerebral, thoughtful sci-fi films in decades. And it's just like, wow, talk about a term that almost sells Soderbergh's Solaris short. Like, cerebral is the exact word I'd be like, I'm not using this. Like, right. that would be the first word. Yeah, it feels like an easy, right, just kind of a catch-all Word, yes, yeah, yes, yes. but I guess that's the one other thing is it's not like, you know, I think Soderbergh can totally deploy the tricks. He can d deploy tricks of memory and flashbacks and stuff. And, you know, like maybe I don't love when we're finally realizing that the page is the Dylan Thomas sure. poem, but I never feel like it's cheap. And I think that's because so much of this movie is just like, it's not a thing of withholding at all. Mm. Like, if anything, like, the two main things I thought about were Brief Encounter, yeah. Eternal Sunshine, for, like, the actual emotional texture. Yeah, I mean, certainly you think of, of the, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, the Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind comes to mind in the sense of just, right, the basic premise that Soderbergh is really digging into, which, which you know, as we said, Stanislav Lem did not love about both the Soderbergh and the Tarkovsky, but kind of yeah. obviously more recently. He passed away in 06, I think, so I, I did. His basic complaint was exactly what you're talking about, which is like, Soderbergh certainly does focus on, you know, you go all the way to Solaris to confront the thing that you weren't willing to confront on Earth, right? Which, okay, fine. Uh, yes. But what's, I think, funny about Lem resisting that is what, you know, and it's in the book, and I, I'm going to read a quick passage that kind of talks about this. Please. What, his, what the book is about, or he'll have you think the book's about, I suppose, is just that the fruitlessness and the kind of, the almost the fakery of the adventuring human explorer, right? And basically the idea of Solaris, the novel, I suppose, is like all we're doing is going further away to find ourselves, right? That's yes. the whole point, right? So, and then, and Snow in the book says this, right? He, it's right here, I have it on this thing. He says, we think of ourselves as the knights of the holy contact. This is another lie. We're only seeking man. We have no need of other worlds. We need mirrors. We do not know what to do with other worlds. And so what I think is like, yes, that's obviously evident. That's clear. But I kind of think it's clear in the two main film adaptations, too. Like, yes. I think all that Tarkovsky and Soderbergh are doing, like the reflection aesthetic in specifically the Soderbergh is a very, to me, a very clear homage to the themes of the book. And yes. then even the ending, yes, the end, certainly the ending of, Tarko of the Tarkovsky and the Soderbergh are both different in their own way, but choose similar paths that are different from the book. Okay, the ending of the book is certainly colder and I suppose sadder, but I think there is a melancholy that's in the same ballpark as the novel 
in both adaptations and sure. in the, for, for the sake of the discussion, the Soderbergh, we don't need to spoil it, I suppose, but it's like the choices being made on healthy choices, right? This is a person who, yes, you know, if you want to talk about mental health and whatever, and that's a whole different thing, but like not a whole different thing, but a whole new direction. The movie is approaching some sort of consensus on like, we are imperfect beings incapable of handling that which happens in our lives. Yes. And even in an ocean planet, which you could convince yourself was heaven, it is not heaven, right? It is only you. Yes. But then, of course, the rebuttal of the movie and anybody who watches the movie is, what well, does it matter? And and maybe it doesn't, right? And I think that's what is, I think, the you know the kitchen table discussion of this film, if you, if, if you will, would be that thing of, of the ending. And frankly, I mean, not to be, you know, I love the book, but it's more provocative. I, I, I prefer the ending of the Tarkovsky or the Soderbergh, where it's like, sure. I, I yes, I prefer that. Let's talk about, let's not make it just this bitter thing. I was kind of thinking about this in the last couple of days as I was, I was rereading some passages and once again, speaking to the, the power of just the piece as a whole, I mean, it all works to me. And I think, yeah, to your point, yes, the Dylan Thomas poem, sure, you know, which is a fairly famous poem by him. I don't know that it's, I guess maybe it's one of his more famous poems. It's, uh, and the title is literally, and death shall have no dominion, right? Yeah. And, and they recite the first stanza of the poem in the movie and it's uh, Kelvin Clooney basically recites it to Rhea McElhone in their courtship. Yes. Right? And it becomes kind of the lingering thing that represents the soul of their fractured relationship. And I think, yes, it comes back and it's, I love Dylan Thomas. I'm Irish, blah, 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 whatever. So I think I'm an easy lay for that stuff. So that's maybe why it works more for me. I, um, I mean, to be fair, Dan, it's not like I'm necessarily critiquing it for that, but I think that's the type of thing. No, it's, it's the sweatiest, it's the sweatiest <laughs> part of the is. movie. I mean, yes. it's, it's the, it's the most like, I, I like know, that language. Yes. Yeah. You're like, okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right. You know, you know, you, we you get already it, we had get me. And then you yeah. went a little You know, it's like Chris, and I don't mind Interstellar, but Chris Nolan saw Solaris and was like, oh, my favorite part is the Dylan Thomas poem. I'm going to just do that for two and a half hours. And I think that's certainly an okay movie as well. But it's no Solaris. Michael, it's no Solaris. No. I'll say that. Yeah, it's interesting that Dylan Thomas poems aside, I think it is a very mature work. I mean, that even sounds reductive, but I think Soderbergh is a filmmaker. You can feel his reach extending yeah. from Solaris on, right? And I think whether it's success or failure, he finds in what happens next, and he finds plenty of both. It expands him as yeah. a filmmaker, is my point. It expands him. You can feel him like he makes his space movie, yeah. right? I think any great filmmaker wants to make their space movie. I think that's a very common... Kubrick wanted to make it. It became AI, a masterpiece, obviously, with you know Spielberg taking over the range. That, that's another kind of a similar in sure. that vein. It's more sci-fi. It's less space, I suppose, but it's in the vein of kind of misbegotten, sure. should have been masterpieces. Everybody disliked it at the time. And then 20 years later, you're like, we were stupid, I guess. We were all dumb. The, the movie was amazing. Why did it, Why did we? everybody hate it? Why was everybody stupid in 2001? But it's like, you know, context is so important. And it's like, you know, so you have, you know, Kubrick tried to make it. Obviously, Spielberg did it. That was both of theirs. You know, every great direct director tries to do it. And I think it's cool that Soderbergh did it. And he did it in his very specific type of way, you know, kind of... But he 
did it in an honest way. I, I right, think that's what I'm saying, yeah. A film I seem to really like, but I like it for different reasons than everyone else is uh, Damon Chazelle's First Man. Because oh, I, like First Man. Yeah. I think a lot of the interrelational stuff is not particularly interesting. But then what I love about that movie is it shows like space travel as almost like this barbarian act. <laughs> like It's like it's only slightly more advanced than, you know, someone getting in a trebuchet. And, and seeing if they can fly. <laughs> like, it, it was that equivalent to me. Yeah, the smartest thing about First Man is that exact thing of like, you know, the sound design of the, of the literal nuts and bolts it's, yeah, is, it's is certainly without question the thing about yes. that movie where it's like, you're, you're watching it and you're like, oh, wow, yeah, they were just in a tin can. <laughs> like, for all of the greatness of the right stuff or Apollo 13, you know, and these kind of more noble, more specifically Apollo 13, where it's, I, I, re- I love Apollo 13, but it's like that whole movie is about everything breaking and still the aesthetic feels very magical, yes. right? Which I think is intentional and I get it. And that's Ron Howard. And I and I will defend Ron Howard till the day sure. I die. I think he can make a great picture. 13 Lives currently on Prime Video. It's, it's quite, quite good. good. But it's quite good. you're right. When Gosling playing Neil Armstrong is like, like the camera's two inches from his face or the lens, whatever you want to say, the, you know, the focal length is you're like, bah, you're looking <laughs> and you're watching it like shake and you're hearing the, you know, and you're like, this fucking thing's going to explode. Like <laughs> who would ever do this? You're like, you know, you're like, and then the beautiful scores kicking up and everything. It does really convey that thing too. that. And this is going off on a total oh, tangent, fine. but whatever, it's fine. But you're right. You're so right to the other thing about first man that I think is underrated. I'm curious if Chazelle had this in his mind he must have i guess is like it also does that thing of like when you're a kid i think what sometimes gets under examined is your imagination is beautiful right and your capacity to love is beautiful and to like try to understand is you know and be compassionate like you have to learn how to hate blah 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 all that stuff that's true like i have these two young boys you see it in real time it's incredible right but what's interesting is the other part of it that comes with the imagination is the thing of like when you're five and you're learning about the moon landing you have thoughts like, but how did they actually land on the moon? (laughs) Right. And then when you become an adult, you kind of do the thing that adults do and you go like, well, they landed, you get it. Like, you're like, you kind of almost like you like do you like yada, yada, that part of it. Right. You're like, well, they, they landed. They, you know how they landed. They landed, you know, one step for man. (laughs) But then when you're watching first man and he's Michael Collins is in the thing above and fucking buzz Corey Stahl and, and Gosling, they're like, going down you feel like the five-year-old and you're like wait 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 so michael collins is gonna like be floating <laughs> above them for like how long and that that's gonna work and then and yeah. then you're also like and wait how did they land and then you're like watching him do it and then like they're running out of fuel and then you have that other thought of like oh yeah they had fuel like they, were, they didn't have like magic like space <laughs> dust like they just had like fucking gasoline or whatever you know and like and he's like becomes this childlike thing but like the scary version of it where like when when you're a kid in bed and you're like well yeah what if i just didn't fall asleep like what would happen (laughs) and you have these weird existential things that creep in you know it becomes that yeah it makes it all very like illuminating yeah it's interesting yeah i haven't thought about that in a while but first man certainly is a very specific kind of like phantasma yeah, you're very much like you're you're like, oh shit, like this is saying this happened. I, I got worried about Solaris a, a little bit. when it started, I was like, oh you get no. worried. Are, yeah. are we gonna yeah. do this yeah. again and I'm not gonna engage with it? And it 
Yes. It didn't do that. But yes, I, yes. I'd like to briefly ask you, why do you think it begins on Earth? Soderbergh, Solaris. Sure. Why does it begin on Earth? That's a good question. Yeah, the novel doesn't. It's also like five, ten minutes. It's. Like, I think it's even less. I think what I like is I think he's kind of clearly trying to almost, not subvert, but like, well, maybe subvert. He's trying to basically reverse the okay. Tarkovsky, right? Where it's like Earth in his, in his version is basically no different from space. Sure. Like the aesthetic of 2002 Solaris, there's no color no. on Earth. Right, like Earth is just rain. It's like neo noir. It's it's great. Yeah, their clothes suck. Right, it's like <laughs> like nothing's interesting about it. And I think that's on purpose. And and obviously in direct defiance of the mm-hmm. Kelvin family's fucking idyllic farm from the Tarkovsky. Right, I think that's intentional. But I think like so much of Soderbergh's work, he remains economical. Right, I mean that you know if you listen to the Film Stage Show, not to get Bill Graham about everything with <laughs> runtime, but another great thing about 2002 Solaris before credits is 90 two minutes yes. like that's, that's crazy. there is not a hollywood movie in existence in theaters right now that's like under 220 because it's just now we live in this world of like <laughs> your ticket you get your money's worth for the ticket yeah. if you have to see black adam it has to be two and a half hours so that you can make sure you get all of the you the know mid credits you know, whatever from the whatever and, <laughs> you know and it's so to watch a film like this that is epic in theme and in sense to be 90 minutes is quite amazing. I read it as kind of a wry nod to the Tarkovsky movie, I suppose. That's how I would. But yeah, I mean, I think that like, you know, I wouldn't be surprised even in this film, if, you know, Viola Davis and Jeremy Davis, who we'll we'll talk about shortly uh, about as well, but like, I wouldn't be surprised if they were only voices. Like there are, it it is really interesting because I was wondering when we're coming into this, you know, when you were talking about how radical this was. And I think the longer we talk about it, I am like, oh, he could have pulled back here for lo-fi reasons, for budget reasons, for any number of things. Yeah. And you're right. He's like economical, but it's it's always it's always purposeful in a way where it's not even like, oh, I'm doing a cool corner cutting like the idea for instance that there's no journey whatsoever to solaris like i didn't think about it for a second i was just like oh of course we skipped that yeah like i would have maybe been annoyed if we got some launch sequence or you know some kind of uh some kind of exposition and and i think you know um i'm trying to think of I, at a certain point, I just started writing a lot of the kind of non sequiturs that characters say because because they're really interesting because one is there's a lot of like dangling things. You know, where's your visitor? Do you want her to come back? Like it, it, everything is just very kind of like curt and there's a, a clipped quality to it. But also I, I think Jeremy Davis has a line like um, I can t- I can tell you what's happening but it won't really tell you what's happening <laughs> yeah it's a good line yeah yeah no it's and there's a lot of great stuff throughout this well that... yeah gabarian comes back later in the movie and he says he basically yes. says there's only choices right which i think is a good you know stunted line and look soderbergh wrote this right which i think he always says he doesn't like his writing which is why he often doesn't write his movies yeah And I think he has this very economical, punctuated style of writing. If you were to go through his filmography and really investigate it, I think you would see the movies he's written 
have that style to them. And I think it works here, to your point, because of kind of the limitations that are yeah. present. Yeah, I think it's a smart decision. Ultimately, there was many versions of it, you know, ahead of Soderbergh taking the reins. But it's clear kind of every frame of this is his, like we were talking about earlier. Yes. Which is, you know, just yet another reason why I think it's such a little miracle of a movie, because that's so rare. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's just it's strange because it really is a, is a chamber piece, and and you know obviously the Tarkovsky was a, was a chamber piece, but I, I I mean I think again it's the interiors of the spaceship are are just you know immaculately designed, and I I think it has a great illusion where the space station as a whole feels you know the satellite whatever you'd like to call it <laughs> the space station as a whole feels large, but then. In individual rooms, and, you know, this is certainly his shooting as well, it it also has that thing where it is, you're very aware that the spatial geography is pretty compact, but it's bigger on the inside. I mean, you get that wonderful scene, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's one of the signature things people point to because it's just so elegant, where it just keeps panning for way longer than you expect it to. And it's almost that I think is, is the really interesting kind of like spatial contradiction of this whole film is it's repeatedly changing the size of these rooms in a way where it's not like amplifying my dread necessarily. It's not that hard to make this into a scary movie. Oh no. Yeah, certainly not. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and you know, to bring up the marketing briefly, like they sold it like that in in some capacities, right? Like they tried to still sell it like more of an event horizon type of a thing or supernova, whatever, you know, super, I was kind of the great, the great Walter Hill supernova film, the Francis Ford (laughs) Coppola edited supernova, but no, yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, the set design is incredible I think that's important to kind of acknowledge and very of the moment which I think is also but not trapped in the moment I don't think either though but yeah you were saying Jeremy Davies I want so yeah as we so Ulrich Tucker is uh, Jabarian very good in this and Jeremy Davies yeah I mean one of these guys the snow character throughout the adaptations kind of acted very differently in all the adaptations which I think is interesting and Davies kind of goes full like yeah I mean when you talk about this could have been a thriller like you wouldn't have had to change anything in Davy's performance you change the other takes around him but what he's giving you could read and play scary right and I think you know that's just who he is I think he's an interesting actor obviously up him from Saving Private Ryan right the lead of David Russell's first movie Spanking the Monkey right he's had a very interesting career great TV career and lost and justified yeah, we just talked to Mark Pellington for the B-Side podcast, and he is the lead of Going All the Way, which is Pellington's first oh, movie, yeah. where him and Ben Affleck are the co-leads. And that's an interesting performance. It's like way more down to earth, but he's still kind of that energy. He's bringing that kind of manic energy to it. And yeah, here he's just kind of dialing it all the way up, as he does other times. And it works perfectly, I think. And Viola, like, I think, or Viola, rather, sorry, is really good. I mean, Viola was in Out of Sight, right? She was in a few early so you know traffic. traffic she's in she's in some Soderbergs this is her first like big one like yeah. her big role she's very good you know she's has she has some really kind of like knockout scenes you know working against you know one of the biggest movie stars at the time you know she's really kind of crushes it 
it. So I think, yeah, all the pieces work. I mean, that's, once again, it's rare to see it all come together. Yeah, and then to have it fall on so many deaf ears, you know, it's, it's different than the good German, right? Where it's like the good German fell on deaf ears, but then when you watch it, you're like, well, okay, it's a kind of a flawed experiment. This, though, it's just not. And I just think, you know, it's marketed the way it's marketed. That certainly is something to consider. We were laughing at the other trailer yes. kind of is like, it's like Titanic in space. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, the guy who made Titanic, this movie is also a romance. And you're like, sure. well. Yes, I mean, that is not untrue. It's also not even remotely <laughs> like Titanic. You know, it's like, it's not even in the same, like, zip code sure. as anybody who would ever see Titanic. You know, and I, and so I think it's kind of... The same ocean. Yeah, you if, you, if you will. Same <laughs> planetary ocean. Yeah, man, I just think it's great to just kind of talk about this movie because, you know, we talked about our guy we, we know and like who's been on the film stage show, Scout Tafoya, mm. obviously. He covered Solaris on his Unloved series, and I think that's a really worthwhile 13 minutes to just kind of, he investigates it and says some similar things, and I hope it continues to get kind of rediscovered and reappreciated, and you know, Soderbergh's not going anywhere as much as he keeps (laughs) saying he is, and I think that helps, certainly. And he's never really made anything like it. Mm. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like just, it's a cool thing. Like that Cameron and Soderbergh work together at the peaks of their careers. And everybody, everybody hated it. Like, I just love that. You know, it's like. So if I put you on the spot, you wouldn't even have something you think is close. Out of sight, out of sight. Okay. And Solaris. And then right below the limey. A lot of his movies are five-star movies for me. I, I really love Soderbergh. Like, I do love Traffic. I do love Aaron Brockovich. I mean, all the, that period is really like rich. Yes. I mean, you can't really oversell that. And even like King of the Hill, his third movie is great. Kafka is terrible, but it's like, you'll never forget <laughs> it. It's so insane. It's like even Soderbergh's like, yeah, if I had to, he's like, I want to recut it. It's like, you know, the underneath is like a total disaster. It's like, he's just an interesting guy. When's the last time you watched Solaris before this? A couple years ago, I watched, I always, I rewatched that. I rewatched The American with George Clooney. is another one of my favorite movies. Okay. Kind of a similar vein. That's like, Corbett. Yeah, yeah, Anton Corbin. Yeah. Uh, Anton he Corbett. made Sorry. right after he made Control, which is a great movie. And now he's kind of, I don't know what he's doing, kind of a great fashion photographer who started making movies. Yeah, man. Solaris. See it. Watch, read it. Watch all of the versions. I'm telling you, man, this weekend was so <laughs> lovely to like reimmerse myself in my like very slight obsession with like, I even started listening to Lem wrote another book that I'd always meant to read called, I'm going to look tell you right now, The Invincible, which he wrote three years after he wrote Solaris. And it's great. I mean, that's the thing, man. These sci-fi writers, dude, like if you can get there, you know, if you can like, you know, it's hard. Like, I'm, for example, Isaac Asimov, right? I read Foundation and I was like, I'm good. That's not my guy. Like, that sure. is not going to be my guy. You know, I just knew it, right? But like Bradbury, yes. uh, Philip K. Dick. V- Vonnegut. You know, Vonnegut is never my guy. Philip K. Dick is a different type of thing, but roughly similar, Scanner Darkly, whatever. Uh, more my guy. And then, yeah, like freaking Arthur C. Clarke more recently. I've been reading Rendezvous with Rama and, and then Lem. It's like there's a wealth of these writers and this type of like really interesting stuff. And I think, you know, the, the bonus with Solaris is you get like three basically great adaptations the bbc audio play and the two movies and then you know the russian tv movies a little bit subpar but yeah it's like i i mean it's it's still a incredible historical yeah it's cool that it exists yeah
Dan, if people liked either Soderbergh's Solaris or Tarkovsky's Solaris, uh, you've already mentioned that the the novel is absolutely worth a read. Um, But where would you tell people to go? What would you tell them to look into? So on HBO Max right now, Fantastic Voyage, the Richard Fleischer movie, not as good. If you liked Solaris, it's a similar vibe. Sure. That's into a um, body. Is that, that's yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like it's a '60s movie. They go into a body. It's like I think it's Raquel Welch. It's fun. It's very quiet. It's like very '60s. I like it well enough. The other movie that I actually was rewatching today ahead of this that I do like a lot actually that I would kind of just to be a little different sure. and it's in the same vein and it's just, you know Arthur C. Clarke is 2010: The Year We Made Contact, which is the Peter Hyams sort of sequel to 2001 is good it's really good it's way different it's based on arthur c Clarke's novel 2010 odyssey 2 it's way different than 2001 but it's very entertaining it's roy scheider it's john lithgow it's bob balaban it's young helen mirren it's good good yeah i don't want to give too much away i guess but it's like a really interesting movie and i even rewatching it today i was like oh yeah this rules. I forgot. Like, Hyams is kind of one of those guys. He's oh, yeah. Like, we got to cover We got to go cover him on the B side. He's like kind of a great, like, workman director, actually. So those are the two I thought of. And then the, for Soderbergh, like, yeah, if you like Solaris, he hasn't done much else like it. So I would just kind of, I would just encourage people to go down the experimental path. Sure. Because, you know, watch Schizopolis. You know, get weird. See if Bubble. you like it. Watch Bubble. I don't like Bubble. Watch it, though. It's interesting. Like, you know, full frontals, like, <laughs> but like, but Fincher, hey, Fincher has a cameo in it, so... And then for Tarkovsky, this is boring, but you should, if this would be your first Tarkovsky, which I think it is for a lot of people, watch Stalker because I do think they're kind of a yin and yangy thing. I think like he, like I said, he made Solaris and you could feel him getting ready to make Stalker. And I think a lot of people would say Stalker's better. I like Solaris, but that's... I I am in that Yeah, that's me being probably a little bit too normie or whatever, but like, but whatever. I mean, it's true. I don't know. So, so Solaris is mecha core, is, is what you're saying? I, in Russian cinema terms, yes, Solaris would be would be mecha core. Okay. In the very long, <laughs> epic, complicated voices of the great Russians, uh, yes, that would qualify as mecha core. <laughs> yeah, thanks for asking that question. I'm trying to think of yeah, other of ones, but yeah, th- that's plenty to chew on. I mean, that you you'll you'll be on your way if you do any of that for sure. But yeah, he man, that guy Soderbergh, he's done it all. So, yeah, if you start with this or whatever and you go down the rabbit hole, man, you're going to be in for a treat. That's all I'll say. Yeah. No, I, uh, yeah, I'm glad I finally had the opportunity to watch this. And it's totally different than the Tarkovsky. It and yeah, yeah it's, it's great in its own way. Yeah. And yeah. I, I wish more people would try to do their own interpretation of things. You create things and you, you know, I get it. It's like you create things and you, it's your baby. And then you're like, well, this isn't what I did. You know, and it's like, yeah, it's not. I just always think it's funny. It's like someone is cutting you a check, I imagine. (laughs) I mean, not that you need to like it. I'm not saying, you know. You say it when you you get the check. You don't have to be a company (laughs) man. I'm not saying anybody needs to be. I just think it's always a little funny. It's like, I'm very much someone. I mean, this speaks to the non-spoiler thing. Like, I do not give a shit about, like, you know, make another version of the thing. It's not going to ruin the other thing. Like, you know, it's like, 
should we remake Casablanca? No, of course we shouldn't do that. But if somebody does, I will always have the first Casablanca. Like, it's not going to ruin Casablanca. Like, in this idea that, like, things get sullied. Like, they remade everything in the 30s and 40s. There's, like, seven <laughs> versions of, like, na- name, a, name a literary character. They made... We- Weathering Heights. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, like, you know, seven Jane Eyres. There's, no, and, like, you know... A- Errol Flynn. Yeah, yeah. Who gives a shit? It's like, yeah, there was 17 Scarlet Pimpernel. <laughs> It's like, you know, two of them are really good. I don't know. It's like, it doesn't matter. It's like, I think yes. this idea that there's some preciousness to like these things you have. It's like, I don't know, like that thing. Who gives a crap? But they're doing it again. It doesn't matter. It's like, I don't, I always find that preciousness I find to be so like sad or something. It's like, I don't get why it should matter. We're all going to die soon. Like, just enjoy the thing you enjoy. Who Like, don't worry about the other thing. This is all going to end very soon. Sure. Just enjoy the other thing. I don't get it. It's like, just, it doesn't matter. Like, let it go. I'm only precious about it when it takes people away, when I know it's going to take people away from doing something for a while. I guess. Don't you think so many people discover the old stuff, though? I always think that's the case. It's like, maybe this is just me being optimistic. You would like to think if you were engaged with that movie, right, and you care enough, when you're older, you'll be like, oh, hey. They made one of these. Disney made one of these. And they were foxes. Oh, hey. Kevin Costner made one of these. And, you know, or, oh, hey, I've liked these. Maybe I'll read, you know, this. Maybe I will watch the 1938 version, right? Like, and I, I try to be optimistic, I guess, is my point of, like, yes, is the Watchmen adaptation, like, controversial? I would hope then people would read Watchmen and be sure. like, okay, I see. That's interesting. You know what I mean? I don't know. I, maybe people don't think of things like that. But I just, I hope it's just opening doors. That's my hope. It's just opening doors like discover it yourself you know what i mean like okay i love the movie underworld about vampires sure. okay maybe one day you'll watch nosferatu i mean you'll get there you know sure. you'll get there and you'll be like yeah nobody's wearing any leather pants in this movie that's weird i i, I hate it <laughs> no i'm not saying i don't love underworld i'm just saying yeah no 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 no. oh, oh you're saying i, I hate it because they're not wearing leather. yes yes, yes nosferatu yes. needs the leather pants thank you for this discussion i have to say this is very fun yeah, I know we went in a lot of different directions, but oh, yeah. I, I appreciate you being a, a game for it. Um, I, I will let you go, Dan, though I know it's an hour later there, but thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Film Stage Show Intermission, a part of the Film Stage Network of Podcasts. Today's episode has been with guest Dan Mecca. You can find Dan on Twitter at DJ Mecca, D-J-M-E-C-C-A, and listen to him regularly on another film stage podcast, The B-Side at TFS B-Side. The B-Side podcast can be found on all major podcast platforms and on the Film Stage website. The Intermission podcast can be followed on Twitter at Intermission TFS, and you can follow my personal account, at Snydell. Episode updates will be posted on the Intermission account, and new streaming recommendations will continue to be posted every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, unless noted. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next Intermission.